The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Health IQ, a company that rewards your knowledge of healthy living with lower rates on life insurance. My co-producer, Robbie Carver, is someone who I'm always trying to figure out how much his life is worth, so I followed him to one of his bike races and asked him some real Health IQ questions. What color of carrot contains the most antioxidants? Yellow, white, purple, orange. Purple. Wow, you're right. To see if Health IQ can help you prove your worth, visit healthiq.com slash outside. That's healthiq.com slash outside. The Outside Podcast is also brought to you by BioLite Energy, a company transforming the way we cook, charge, and light our lives off the grid. Most small camping stoves run off some form of fossil fuels, but BioLite creates heat through the combustion of small organic materials, also sometimes known as sticks. So you start a quick fire in the stove's chamber, and then the cook stove utilizes its own thermal energy to improve combustion. It fans the flame, so the fire burns hotter. A conductive attachment generates electricity from the heat, which powers both the fan and a USB charging port, so you can plug in lights, batteries, or even your phone while you're out on the trail. That's right, you can listen to the outside podcast no matter how long you've been outside. I can't endorse this thing enough. Go to BioLightEnergy.com for more. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches, stories from our writers in the field. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when it started, but a few years ago, writer Ian Fraser, who goes by Sandy, began to notice a phrase, or maybe it's better to call it an idea, popping up all over the place. People were talking about wilderness as a magnificent outdoor cathedral. I just started seeing it all the time. Uh, Suddenly, it just, maybe it was also because this is the uh, centenary of the National Park System or something, but but I just saw the, the phrase so many times that I was just like, okay, you know, enough is enough. The phrase is shorthand for the awe you might feel in a particularly beautiful place. You know, the feeling that you are somewhere sacred and special. I'm not going to keep describing it because you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, if the phrase was itself a living thing, it would be feeling very smug and satisfied, you know, and very pleased with itself because of the success with which it continues to to propagate itself in the world. Fraser is one of Outside's favorite essayists, and he's written about everything from getting scared in the woods to giving bad advice to the overwhelming happiness of dogs. His stuff is subtle and funny, and unlike almost anything else you read. This essay, however, struck a particular nerve. The magazine got mail about it for months, even if sometimes the letters weren't quite addressed correctly. Dear Outdoors magazine. (laughs) Yeah, I get that all the time. (laughs) I suspect Mr. Frazier is a brilliant, kind, and generous person. However, his recent essay in your magazine regarding the term Magnificent Outdoor Cathedral may have been one of the most pointless and arrogant pieces of writing that I've ever read. So I got to ask, I mean, uh, are, are you a crank? God, no. I normally don't write pieces like this. Definitely, this is a cranky essay, and I'm actually not all that in favor of cranky essays. I mean, they are a a hazard as you get older, because as you get older, you become cranky. God, did anybody not hate this piece? This is all news (laughs) to me. In his own defense, Fraser says that he was taking aim at false reverence, not reverence itself. 
It's too easy to call something a cathedral because it's fashionable without really feeling anything. Billions of people have said, I love you. When you say that to somebody, you have to, you know, it has to, you have to be present in it. So the magnificent outdoor cathedral, is it a cliche, a piece of dead language or a heartfelt expression of genuine adoration? We'll talk again afterwards, but for now, I'll let Sandy make his case. You are hiking in some remote, unfrequented place. Shafts of sunlight come over the ridge top. The quiet is the quietest you have ever heard. The earth itself seems to hold its breath. You pause on the trail. You look around. You are all alone. A thought occurs to you. The place you are in reminds you of... Stop right there. Restrain your inspiration if you can. What you are thinking and what you are about to whisper to yourself and what, if you are a writer, you will want to write in an article or a book when you describe this moment is that you feel as if you are in a magnificent outdoor cathedral. It's an understandable impulse. Thousands, if not millions of people in similar circumstances have felt the same way, have had the same words on their lips, and perhaps have even typed them later on their computer screens. In the process, these falsely inspired have not only made themselves dumber, but have made other people dumber, too, and contributed to all-around dumbness. I don't dispute the awe they're trying to convey, and will take their word that the place they're describing is beyond wonderful. But it is not a cathedral. With some of the things that we say, we are only under the illusion that we are saying them. In fact, they are saying us. They are using us as the vectors by which they keep replicating themselves in the world. This they do by many means, such as familiarity, unavoidable aptness, and cliché. I'll give you an example. One night I was watching a baseball game on TV. In the dark blue sky over the stadium, a half-moon rose. The camera showed it, and the announcer said, It's a beautiful night tonight, folks, and there's a beautiful full moon over the stadium. His description defied the visible fact that the moon was only a half-moon. But nobody corrected him. The familiar phrase, beautiful full moon, and its tongue-friendly interior rhymes carried all before it, including the reality of the half-moon that was actually in the sky. I felt I was in a magnificent outdoor cathedral. Such a proud, powerful cliché. Every time I come across it, I do a slow burn. There's an insufferable smugness to it, a piousness, a fake counterintuitiveness, as if most of us foolishly think cathedrals are cathedrals, while the real, true cathedrals exist unnoticed out in nature, where the average dummy never thinks to look. There's no such thing as a magnificent outdoor cathedral. I admit that I have used the phrase myself, or it induced me to write it, 
in a piece I did 34 years ago. I was quoting someone I admired, and I thought he had hit on an amazing truth. I was young and suggestible. By the time the concept possessed me, it had already been around for at least a hundred years, ever since that shift in history, when people stopped being afraid of the outdoors and began to get mushy about it. You see evidence of it in all the cathedral rocks and cathedral ridges and cathedral peaks and cathedral buttes that are out there. Long ago, Teddy Roosevelt, the country's original cathedralizer, referred to Yosemite National Park as a great, solemn cathedral. For centuries, we had been hacking away at the continent, killing animals, cutting down forests, and suddenly, when we were no longer terrified of it, behold, a cathedral. The significant upside of the cathedral concept, then not yet hardened into a cliché, was that it helped inspire the creation of our national park system. Coincidentally, this was also at a time when the last free Native Americans were being forced onto reservations. Cathedrals can't have people living in them. For the metaphor to work, the MOC, Magnificent Outdoor Cathedral, must be empty of human beings, except, of course, for the observer. And the MOC must draw the eye upward to the requisite ecclesiastical sunbeams. Bugs are unwelcome also. You never hear the people on Duck Dynasty waxing eloquent about the magnificent outdoor cathedral they live in because they live in a swamp. In fact, the metaphor rules out most of the planet. Globigerina ooze, the calcium-rich goo left after the deaths of tiny shelled sea animals, covers vast reaches of the ocean bottom. Nobody who ventures to the glob ooze seafloor refers to it later as a cathedral. The word comes from the Latin cathedra, which means chair. In church usage, a cathedra is the chair where a bishop sits. The cathedral contains that chair. The MOC metaphor refers subliminally to that origin. That is, it makes us, the describer, feel like a bishop, in holy solitude with our wilderness church enclosing and sanctifying us. We overlook the fact that real cathedrals were built to hold hundreds or thousands of people. In our MOC, a crowd of hundreds or thousands is the last thing we hope to meet up with. This combination of nature-loving high-mindedness, with the exclusion of almost everybody except ourselves, is what gives the MOC its special bogus appeal. Recently, I've been thinking about my friend Leonard Thomas walks out, who died in August of 2015 at the age of 73. He was an Oglala Sioux of the tribe of Red Cloud and Crazy Horse, and he called himself Le Warlance. When I first met Le, he was living in Manhattan in an apartment with the head of a buffalo drawn in carpenter's pencil on the ceiling. The first time I visited, he explained that he had been lying on the floor staring at the ceiling when suddenly from the cracks the details of a buffalo head emerged in a kind of vision, and he then penciled the vision in. I lay on the floor myself and looked up, and for a moment the sensation was like being eye to eye with the white buffalo of Lakota mythology. Later, when I was in eastern Colorado to give a speech, a woman named Kelly took me to a cave on her friend's ranch near the Arkansas River. 
A little way in, on the rock ceiling, was an ancient pictograph of a buffalo calf. You had to lie on your back to see it. A faint application of red paint still colored the image which seemed to have been elicited from the irregularities of the surface as on Lay's ceiling. The red calf seemed to tremble. I've seen the Mona Lisa face to face, and this image had a similar aliveness. Because of Lay, I had a sense of what I was seeing, the depiction of a vision. I came to the edge of the cave and looked out at the miles of prairie along the river. An overwhelming feeling of the place's holiness grabbed me. Luckily, by then, I knew enough to leave it at that. Because of legal problems in New York State, Lay had to move back to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. He returned to Oglala, his hometown, and when I was living in Montana, I often visited him there. The main thing we did together was drive, almost always in my car, because he was often drunk and had long ago lost his driver's license, not that either of those considerations would have stopped him. The reservation landscape, which looked like empty ground to me, teemed with history, much of it blood-soaked. In other parts of the country, historical markers on certain sites note their connection to important past events, not on Pine Ridge. The spot on the Jumping Bull Ranch, where two FBI agents were murdered in 1975 during a tribal civil war, is unmarked and resembles any of a million other acres of western ranch land. Lay's running commentary filled in the landscape and peopled it as we passed by. If I had said, after being shown the red calf, or while standing with Lay by an awe-inspiring chasm in the reservation's badlands, I feel as if I am in a magnificent outdoor cathedral, I would have been a sap. Such a flight of metaphor was not mine to make and would have violated Will Rogers's helpful maxim, never miss a good chance to shut up. What applied in those cases applies outdoors in general. You have no real idea what went on in a place, what it has meant to humans before you, what it will mean after. Your own take is never definitive, nor should you think it is. Or, as another philosopher once said, it don't do to be too goddamn cocksure. Most of the places where we live our lives have fixed meanings. They are already labeled, or worse, branded. Much of the trash that drifts all over the planet nowadays has brand names on it, and the MOC concept resembles that trash. It's sort of a psychic branding. The great thing about the outdoors is that it has no one meaning. If you want to think a place is an MOC, that's your business. But it's only polite to keep the cliché to yourself. Otherwise, it will grow weedily and crowd out other ways of looking at the place. The people your MOC excludes will have no idea what you're talking about. The young, for example. It's already hard enough to peel the kids from their screens and persuade them to do stuff outdoors. And today, the national parks suffer from a scarcity of young users. If we tell them, and don't forget, you're in our magnificent outdoor cathedral, how will they react? 
they'll redefine the place in their own defiant way, will object and complain, and the rich soil of cross-purposes will sprout gated real estate and dull regulations. Lay asked his relatives to scatter his ashes in the Black Hills near the reservation. The U.S. government stole the Black Hills from the Sioux after gold was discovered in them in the 1870s. The tribe considered the Black Hills holy, and still does, though the chance of them ever being returned to the Sioux and receiving that status seems small. Lay never referred to the Black Hills as a cathedral. On the subject of their holiness, he was vague. I got the impression that he didn't want them officially declared holy, but he didn't want them not holy either. This benign vagueness seems the best approach to me. May we tread carefully everywhere with reverential doubt. It don't do to be too goddamn cocksure. As for the magnificent outdoor cathedral, it will outlive every person currently on earth. Very few living creatures are as hardy as a cliché. Space travelers in future millennia will probably bring it with them when they find the next habitable planet. I feel as if I am standing in a magnificent outer space cathedral, a pioneer will report, the sound of his voice reverberating in his helmet. Anything that exists wants to exist more, and that goes for the MOC. To be honest, I can't guarantee I'll never use it again myself. But if I do, I'll forgive the lapse because I'm only one human being, while the great undead MOC lives on. Can I can I ask you a few more questions? Sure. In reading some of the comments and letters that outside got one of the common themes seems to be sure maybe it's not a cathedral but that's the best thing that we can call it can you think of something better um no <laughs> i guess <laughs> i mean I, I i think that you can try for something else but if you can't Sometimes it's better not to say anything. Uh, it's it's just really interesting because we do we do live by words that we say over and over and over. I mean phrases and things that we say over and over, and we live by uh, ideas and uh, concepts and uh, uh, tropes. I guess you can call them that are repeated generation after generation, and the job of every generation is to make those things alive. And when you bring a cliche to the way you look at things, you don't see it. And if you don't see it, uh, it's just one step from that to, I think, some kind of disaster. There's almost a feeling of urgency. There's real feeling of urgency that if you can't convey to people the aliveness of, of the planet and the, the danger that, that, that it is in, uh, that it's really like a, a life and death problem, a life and death struggle. You know, getting getting mushy about the outdoors is is kind of a product of the last fifty or sixty years of uh, environmentalism. I mean, it goes back to John Muir, um, but 
I wonder if there, in some way, you were also advocating for like moving on to a new paradigm in some way, like uh, some other way of of looking at uh, some other productive, beneficial way of looking at at nature. Yeah, I mean that you know the kind of nature I I spend more time honestly observing nature in in very humanized, very developed settings. You know what I'm working on right now outside is a piece about invasive toads, cane toads in South Florida. And in cane toads live next to the McDonald's. You know, that's where they like to live. I mean, cane, cane toads live in malls uh, right near the Winn-Dixie. You know, they live uh, down by the city park. You know, they like human beings. And I love nature that is nature alive right at my feet, you know, and I live in the suburbs. You know, the, the, the notion that nature is something way out there where you have to stand and be in, in, in reverence at, uh, you know, uh, El Capitan in Yosemite or something like that. Or, you know, that there are places where you're supposed to feel it. And then there are places where, well, forget about it. This isn't nature. But everything is nature. And, and after Hurricane Sandy, where there was just water everywhere and all kinds of weird stuff washed up all over the shores of New York City... You know, that's to me, that's living nature. That's really exciting living nature. It's not pretty. It's not recreational necessarily at all. It, that was, it, you could almost do it as like a religious parallel that if you think what's holy is in the cathedral, you are going to miss what's holy in the pub or on the street. You know, I mean, you can't think that that's holiness and everything else is not. Is there an outdoors cliche that you really like that you that you use and embrace? <laughs> a cliche, an outdoor cliche that I like. Like she's a beauty for a fish or something. Well, I don't know if this really qualifies as a cliche if it's used that much, although it may. Um, the the unbelievable excitement of hooking a steelhead, people say the tug is the drug. And I've just, I've just gotten a, a, several letters from people who said, you're absolutely right, the tug is the drug. You know? <laughs> and I, I mean, it is something that steelhead fishermen have been saying probably for for generations but to me it's still it's a cliche but it's still alive you know it's a yeah. judgment call i guess but to me that really that describes you know the tug is it really is it, it's this like being hooked up to an iv that just just racks your whole body immediately you know yeah and you're lucky if you can get two hits a year i know that's the other thing you've been <laughs> sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting and hoping and then you get it, and uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, almost a spiritual exercise. Sandy Fraser is the author of many books, including On the Res, Travels in Siberia, and most recently, Hogs Wild. You can email your thoughts about the magnificent outdoor cathedral to podcast at outsidemag.com. This piece was produced by Robbie Carver and me, Peter Frickwright. We'll be back in two weeks to kick off a new batch of survival stories.